For the week of May 15th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's fair capital city, Washington, D.C. The rest of the Energy Gang joins me. Coming to us from her office in Northeast D.C. is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. She has a long history in the utility industry, smart grid advocacy, policy consulting. Now to cap off her distinguished career, she is our co-host on the Energy Gang podcast. (laughs) Catherine, what has been the highlight of your week so far? I'll tell you the biggest thing uh, that struck fear in my heart was the news about the Antarctic glaciers. That's absolutely terrifying. Yes, that's right. Scientists are saying that a big uh, shelf in Antarctica is collapsing. When they when scientists use the word collapse, they don't mean that it has literally collapsed into the ocean. It just means that it is an irreversible decline. People should know that there's a big difference there. But uh, eventually, over the next century or so, they're talking about sea level rise of 10 to 12 feet due to this collapse. So it, it is really scary. Absolutely. Coming to us from Minnesota this week, it is the ever affable, always quotable Jigger Shah. He's an energy futurist and author of Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what's got you in Minnesota? Well, you know, they've got this uh, great uh, conference here every year on uh, renewable energy, so I'll be keynoting that tomorrow. And then I've decided to go step in and see my friend Michael Noble here while I'm here because uh, he just does great work. That's right. And we talked about Michael on a show about value of solar tariffs. He was, he and many others were instrumental in developing the process in Minnesota for uh, valuing solar beyond net metering. So I met him for the first time at our solar summit. Great guy. He's doing good work. And I have to ask you a question. I've been wanting to ask you for a while. And since you're at a conference, I'm sure they're going to introduce you as an energy futurist. Is that a title you created yourself? Or is there like a society of futurists that give you that futurist title when you've made enough predictions? No, you know, I think it was a big joke that was created by um, my friend Rob Wise. And I think one of the producers at one of these television segments said, that's not a joke. We really like that. We're going to use that. And so I think it just stuck. (laughs) That's great. Well, speaking of predictions, a lot of people predicted that the landmark Shaheen Portman efficiency bill would wither away and die in Congress this year. I silently assumed the same thing, and that was the case after all. In our first segment, we will look at the politics that brought that efficiency bill down. Then, is anyone going to get a commercial offshore wind project in the waters here in the U.S.? The Department of Energy is working hard to make that possible, and we'll talk about their efforts. Finally, are state officials the true drivers of fossil fuel divestment? And of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you do not know. First topic, the crippling politics of the Shaheen-Portman Energy Efficiency Bill. Who would have thought that a simple bill to establish model building codes, create a financing authority for efficiency projects, and incentivizing manufacturing equipment upgrades would get so much pushback? But it did. And this week, the Senate failed to pass the Shaheen-Portman bill after Republicans filibustered, saying they wanted amendments forcing development of Keystone XL and limiting EPA regulations on power plants. That's also what derailed the bill last year. The politics of this fight are what's really interesting and very sad. So we're going to be rubbernecks for a moment and focus on the political car crash that just happened. Catherine, what would you say stalled this bill? Is it energy issues or was it more about Senate Republicans wanting to stick it to Majority Leader Harry Reid? 
Yeah. So take any actual rationale around energy out of the conversation. Um, And just by way of background, for those of you who don't follow, haven't been following this bill, it's been seven years since the last major energy legislation was passed. And in 2009, the stimulus bill was passed. So that was also, you know, had a lot of energy policy embedded in it. But this was a bill that was described as innocuous, popular. The Chamber of Commerce supported it. The National Association of Manufacturing supported it. Um, Environmentalists supported it. Energy efficiency folks supported it. So it had huge bipartisan, broad support. Why is that? Because there wasn't anything with real teeth in it, and yet it was kind of a nudge in the right direction. Um, And so what ended up happening was that, you know, nowadays with every piece of legislation, pretty much, although this never used to be used, really, was the filibuster um, threat, was that to take a bill to the floor, you have to file cloture. And they got it um, when they when they put it to the floor. And Harry Reid said, all right, here's what we need to do. We're not going to have any amendments. So so the cloture vote passed, but then they still had to they had to vote on passage of the bill. And he said, we're not going to allow any amendments to the bill itself. We'll just have a straight vote on the bill. And then anybody who wants to can offer amendments for votes on Keystone, carbon tax, EPA, whatever you want, Ellen, you know, nit- uh, liquid natural gas, whatever you want, you can have those votes. And the Republicans then refused to pass the bill. And there are a bunch of different things in play. One is uh, Gene Shaheen's election. If you think about who's yeah. running against Gene Shaheen, it's good old Scott Brown from Massachusetts. Now he's running in New Hampshire as a Senate uh, candidate. And, you know, they don't want to give her anything. They basically well, do yeah. not. We saw, I saw reports that he had lobbied GOP senators to uh, avoid passing the bill so that the, she wouldn't have anything to run on. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give Scott Brown too much credit. He wasn't like super effective (laughs) as a senator. So I wouldn't give him too much credit for bringing that down. Um, And, you know, you get people like Senator Murkowski, who's the ranking member on Senate Energy. She's a Republican. She was very unhappy that this bill didn't pass. Um, But there were also people like Mark Begich, Pryor, Hagan, Landrieu, who were pro-Keystone, who were then not able to take votes on Keystone. It was like Harry Reid knew exactly how to set it up where where no one, uh, you know, where where he knew that his people were protected. Unfortunately, the Republicans then saw that as we're, we can't give anybody a win. We can't have anybody right. go home and cl- declaring victory on anything. And it, And it's sad because this is something that was – you know, it was going to create over 200,000 jobs, save billions of dollars. You know, uh, manufacturers were really excited because this was going to drive innovation in manufacturing. It just it is very sad that the that the content of the bill was not what brought it down. And a lot of people are really mad at uh, Mitch McConnell as well, because supposedly he had a deal with Harry Reid. That's what Harry Reid says, at least. And the deal was that you don't put amendments in the bill and I will give you an up or down vote on uh, Keystone and on EPA regs and so forth. And yeah, so- I mean, I think it, they thought that, you know, if they did just, I, first of all, I think it means that they don't really care that much about Keystone, that that they use it as a punching bag, but they're not going to fall on their swords for who, it. Who? Both the, Republicans? the Republicans, yeah. yeah. And then if you think about it, if they happened, if Keystone had a thumbs up vote on that amendment, Landrew could take it back to her election, which is very close. Baggage, Pryor, Hagan, they could all take it back to their states. They have very tight elections and say, all right, we had the vote. I voted for it. And now they can't do that. 
So I think it was, uh, you know, McConnell did the calculus, did the vote tabulation and decided, you know, from what I can read into this, that it wasn't worth it giving the Democrats any way that they could possibly have a win out of this bill or any of the amendments. Well, I mean, I think that the question really becomes how do we how do we allow this to get to this place where um, where environmental bills are just completely partisan and. I think Harry Reid deliberately set the vote up this way to go this way so that he would have something to say during the election cycle where he could say, look, Republicans weren't even fair on this, where they had all these Republican co-sponsors. And, you know, I think Harry Reid did this to us in 09, 2010 as well. And I just think it's fundamentally unacceptable that Democrats uh, and environmentalists are in bed together when Harry Reid's throwing us under the bus like this all the time. Wait, do you think that's the case, Catherine? I mean, no. it sounds like he tried to, yeah, he made a deal here yeah. and Republicans didn't go along with that deal. The thing I is, think he wanted Harry... it to be clean. He wanted it to be a clean bill so the people who are, you know, environmentally friendly could take that vote. The people who had to vote with Keystone could take that vote separately to divide the issues up. And, you know, of course, it went down the way it did, but that wasn't because Harry Reid set it up that way necessarily. I think he knew it was going to happen this way and he liked it because I think that now he can actually go on to all of these like talk shows and say, look, this is the Koch brothers. This is what they do. And now look at what happened. I told you this was going to happen. This is exactly what happened. I think he knew exactly what was going to happen. I'm not saying he set it up to fail, but he absolutely set it up to make Republicans look bad because he wanted to use it in the election. Well, he probably had an idea of what they were, what the Republicans were going to do. <laughs> and I think the exact same thing is going to happen with the tax credits. So are, are we looking at no bill whatsoever? This is dead. This is gone through the elections. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the only thing that's going to happen at this point is in lame duck. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about tax extenders, too. I think that that's going to the same thing's going to happen because they're going to set it up the same way where it'll be a clean bill. And um, I'll be very surprised if they get it through when he wants to next week. So I think everything now is looking for lame duck. And a lot of that's going to hinge a lot of motivation to do anything during lame duck is going to hinge on the Democrats hanging on to the Senate. Let's move along to our second topic, offshore wind. 2017. That's when the Department of Energy expects to see the first demonstration-scale offshore wind projects deployed in the U.S. It has been a long time coming. The battle over Cape Wind, the proposed 450-megawatt project slated for the coast of Massachusetts, has lasted 13 years. And if all goes well, that project could begin producing electricity by 2016. But for now, the U.S. offshore wind market is all about proof of concept, and we really can't call it a market yet. Since 2012, the Department of Energy has put nearly $230 million into R&D efforts for new offshore wind turbine designs, uh, tower designs, to study grid integration issues, environmental issues, and now to fund actual demonstration projects. This week, DOE announced $47 million in funding for three projects in Virginia, New Jersey, and Oregon to test new technologies and monitor environmental impacts. If installed, these projects, which cumulatively represent about 67 megawatts of capacity, could represent the true birth of offshore wind in this country. That is, if the developers can sign contracts for the power. So I want to talk about DOE's strategy for getting offshore wind off the ground, but First, you know, the hard reality of getting these projects in the water. Will they secure PPA in time to develop by the 
DOE deadline of 2017. Jigger, do you have any thoughts on the challenges these developers are, are going to face in selling their power and, and attempting to leverage investment in the next year or so? Yeah, I think if you think about the Delaware uh, experience as well as the experience off of Block Island, uh, which Deepwater is doing, you know, I think what it shows you is that at the end of the day, this looks more like concentrating solar power where people have to sign contracts at 14, 15, 16 cents a kilowatt hour, maybe even higher. And that means that they're really providing a lot of subsidies for this technology, which is not the case for, you know, more traditional solar and wind off onshore wind power today. And so one of the big challenges is that, you know, which states really want to step up and pay an explicit subsidy on their PPA to be able to do this. I mean, one of the reasons why renewable portfolio standards made so much sense is because if it was a small enough project and it was combined with a large enough electricity market, it really didn't have a big impact on the price. But for a lot of these Northeast states, their markets aren't that large. And so if you're going to have to sign a deal for a 150 megawatt uh, offshore wind deal, which is really what size it needs to be to be really cost effective, the 67 megawatt thing it's not too bad, and DOE is subsidizing it down to make the costs bearable. But when you really want to see offshore wind take off, it's got to be 150 megawatts in size or more. And I'm not sure a lot of these small regional s- states can really you know, shoulder the burden without a lot of help. Are they willing to pay a premium, you think, for less volatility when you consider what's happened to natural gas prices in the Northeast? Well, I think that Delaware... D- was and they, and they did sign that deal there was lots of reasons why that deal fell apart in the end but then the Rhode Island deal is being subsidized because um, Block Island was paying 50 cents a kilowatt hour for power and so and they're going to be fully funded and and connected to the 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 Rhode Island grid through this project as well so the transmission lines are going to get subsidized by the offshore wind project um, but even on that project they did meet the test to get the 30 percent ITC on wind power um, before the end of 2013, they put their deposits down, but they're not gonna finish that project till 2016. And so that's really the first real project that I think is gonna get done um, through this new framework that DOE is is putting out. I think it's great that DOE is doing it, but I just think when you think about the momentum in offshore wind in Europe right now, Korea, Japan, other places, the, you know, the smartest offshore wind developers in the world aren't focused on the US market right now. So DOE has attempted to actually develop the industry from soup to nuts. You know, they've gone down and looked at tower design. They've thought about environmental reviews, permitting projects, thinking about the best way to interconnect these projects to the mainland. I mean, for the last three, two or three years, they've really focused heavily on these issues. And now since two, actually since I think 2005, they've been really uh, focused on these issues. And in 2012, they announced some pilot projects that they wanted to fund and they wanted to put many of these lessons learned into action. So I have to give them credit that they haven't done this piecemeal. They really have attempted to, to scale these lessons learned on the R&D level up to a commercial scale. Catherine, any thoughts on, on that process, um, on what you're hearing on DOE's efforts? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, as Jigger, as Jigger says, this stuff is so expensive. So 
they're given these three projects in Virginia, New Jersey, and Oregon are going to get $47 million each. The losers get $3 million grants to do some additional R&D. And these are all, um, you know, it's new technology, Twisted Jacket Foundation, Floating Foundation, um, kind of different kinds of technologies. I just, uh, you know, the the problem is, as Jigger says, like trying to get investment in these. Um, my sense, and I would love to hear what Jigger thinks about this, is because of the Atlantic Wind Connection plans for the, you know, offshore transmission line in New Jersey. Do you think that the New Jersey project has a better chance? Well, I think it all comes down to whether New Jersey is willing to pay above market prices. One of the reasons why it might make sense is if you connect the Long Island um, you know, corridor, which D.E. Shaw has been working really hard with Blue Water on, with the New Jersey connection at Atlantic City, then you might be able to make it work because Long Island's power prices are so high. And the same thing is true with New York. And New York has a fundamental problem with natural gas capacity into that region. And so during the polar vortex, they were paying through the nose for natural gas. And so what you want to try to do is to figure out how this becomes a true hedge, which I think Stephen was talking about. And those markets, New Jersey and New York, are large enough that you could actually spread the cost of a 150-megawatt farm across both um, both territories, and the rate impact for uh, each rate pair would be minimal at best. Yeah, and I just wonder how the um, EPA rule will play into this as the states start looking at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And 80% of the demand, electric demand in our country is from coastal U.S. cities. So, I mean, offshore has the potential to play a huge role. Uh, it, the issue, I guess, is just uh, finding investors. Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to be many years, at least 2017, until these projects get in the ground. And it's definitely not clear whether some of these projects are going to sign contracts. The DOE has set performance targets, though, and I believe each project gets $4 million, and then they, before they sign a contract, and they have to prove by 2015 that they've actually got a power purchase agreement in place. But a lot of questions for the development of the industry here, certainly not even close to a market yet. Yeah, and they also, their tax credit expired, too, to just add, add misery on top. Let's go to our final topic. If you've been watching the Showtime climate change series, Years of Living Dangerously, keep your eyes out for Jigger. In an upcoming episode, he's going to be talking about Washington State's Governor Jay Inslee, who's seen as the first true climate change governor. And I bring this up because local leaders are emerging as some of the most vocal proponents of coal divestment and climate action. And last week, proving this, Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick gave a rousing commencement address at UMass Amherst in which he called for a future free of fossil fuels, mostly talking about coal. Uh, let's listen to a couple minutes of it. It's really good speech. Here are some highlights. For we cannot continue to consume so much of the world's energy and take so little responsibility for the impact of that consumption on the lives of others and the life of the planet itself. The Obama administration released a report co-authored by over 300 independent scientists which cataloged the evidence of climate change and its impact. The assessment demonstrates that climate change is an issue right now 
not just for future generations. The impacts are being felt in all corners of the country and in a range of manifestations, including heat waves, coastal flooding, intense precipitation, and more extreme storms. Starting seven years ago, with that future in mind, we in Massachusetts took a fresh look at our energy reality. We knew that if we harnessed Massachusetts-grown energy sources, reduced our energy consumption, and protected our natural resources, we could strengthen both the environment and our economy. And I am proud of the progress we have made and the example we have set for the nation. In 2007, when I took office, we had just over 3 megawatts of solar capacity. Today, we have nearly 500 megawatts installed, and will more than triple that by 2020. In 2007, we had just over 3 megawatts of wind capacity. Today, we have 103 megawatts of land-based wind, and are poised to become home to the nation's first offshore wind farm. We have tripled the energy we're saving from, energy, from efficiency initiatives that today lead the nation in energy efficiency and greenhouse, greenhouse gas reduction targets. Working with others... Okay, firstly, I love that everyone is cheering for his wind and solar lines. And this speech is important for a couple of reasons. We're always talking about how leaders need to stand up and talk about how renewables are working today. You know, that climate change is a threat today and that renewable energy can provide a solution today and that it's working. And Governor Patrick did that. So that in itself, I think, is significant. Um, But also notable is that Governor Patrick is possibly considering a run for president and having someone willing to stand up for the idea of clean energy and climate action in such a bold way is also pretty important. So, Jigger, you flagged this story for us this week. I want to hear what you think is so important about this speech. So, I mean, one of the things that I've always been very critical of with President Obama um, and others in this movement on the political side is that they're always hedging. It's always basically natural gas is the bridge to the future. We're doing our best to make incremental progress. There's never like somebody with the same level of enthusiasm on our side of the issues as there is, let's say, on the Tea Party side with Sam Brownback trying to shut down 15 percent of the state of Kansas. And so like when Deval Patrick gives his speech, I finally thought, that's damn cool, right? That, that, a pres- that a future presidential candidate would actually say on stage in public that he foresees a future that's positive and better than the one we have now that's fossil fuel free. I don't think that, you know, that Jay Inslee's ever said that. I get the fact that we infer that he believes that. But when he didn't say anything about the coal trains because the politics are there, et cetera, I just think a lot of the politicians on our side of the issue are really trying to get reelected. And so they sort of go to the middle and they're trying really hard to do what they can through executive orders. But they're not really inspiring the population and the public around this is a positive future. This is a future like when Kennedy said, we're going to put you know, a man on the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And I think that we need that level of leadership, and I think Deval Patrick shows us the way here. Yeah, it's great because UMass Amherst, it's their flagship of that enormous private uh, uh, public system, 22,000 undergrads. It's a huge place. I mean, he picked the absolute right place. And what he's doing is he's giving these kids, these kids who are coming out, they're hearing what's going on all over the planet, and he's giving them a vision 
you guys are the solution and it can be done. Like basically saying you guys can take ownership of this thing. I yeah. think it's great. Yeah, agreed. And it's happening now. So we have seen a shift from Obama that I think is pretty positive. You look at the National Climate Assessment Report, the communications are around that are there are impacts happening today and climate change is influencing America right now. You look at the president's State of the Union speech where he talked about a solar system being installed every four minutes and that will soon be every two and a half minutes. Uh, his upcoming support, personal support for EPA regulations on June 2nd, the president is going to personally unveil and talk about the rules. And apparently some internal staffers at the White House are saying that he's taking more personal ownership of this. And he, in public speeches, has talked about climate change as an immediate threat, not as a future threat for future generations. That's a meaningful shift, and it's brand new, and people have been talking about it for a few years now, and it's really good to see the president finally shifting in that direction. And someone like Deval Patrick, who is a future potential future national leader, doing the same thing in, in a more aggressive way. Look, I mean, I'm giving President Obama tons of credit for the shift he's made in the last year. I, I agree with you. I think he's made huge progress. I just think the nuance of what I'm after is important, which is that coming out and actually saying that not only have we invented all of the technologies in the United States mostly since the 1970s to make this shift, but it's actually the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet and that we can actually be fossil fuel free in the future, I think is an important milestone and an important tipping point, which the president has not yet found the comfort to be able to say. And I don't think that Jay Inslee has yet found the comfort for him to say that in Washington State. And I think Jay Inslee is amazing. I gave money to his campaign. I think he's awesome. I just think that having Deval Patrick go that extra step really does matter. Yep. I don't want to put too much stock into this issue because while poll after poll shows that people uh, want to hear candidates talk about climate change, it's very clear that on a list of priorities, people put economic issues and joblessness and all sorts of other issues above climate change. With that said, I think that if young people are going to rally around the next president like they did Obama – Climate change and clean energy can be an important part of that messaging. If you listen to the way that people responded to Deval Patrick and the way that he was talking about those issues, there are a lot of young people who care deeply about it. And when he was rattling off the statistics about how Massachusetts had invested in clean energy, people loved it. It is very clear that it is one that can rally no, younger but voters. Should, but we should overplay yeah. climate. I mean, look, my thing is that when you think about the Internet, which basically created the richest year that we've had in recent memory, which was 1999. That's exactly what we are offering. With O-Power going public, with Solar City going public, we are bigger than the internet. To suggest for a moment that, like, you know, that you're going to spend a trillion dollars of new infrastructure in this country, which is what we need over the next six years, without taking into account resiliency and climate change at the core of it, is criminal. Right. I mean, we are going to create all of those jobs, all of those blue collar jobs, all of the things that people like people are paying three and a half times more for gasoline today than they did in 1999. We can change that. We have the technology today to figure out how to get them to drive less miles, drive more efficiently and actually use a lower cost fuel. 
that's all clean tech. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. You have to take ownership of it and say, we can do it, we are doing it, and you guys are going to do it, and not be all of the above, which is just such a lame position to take. When you look at what's happening in coal, and this week, having a, in West Virginia, the Brody Mine, two people were killed in an explosion. The Turkish Mine, 282 people so far. I mean, there should be a war on coal. They should shut everything down. And so for him to say, look, we got two more to do in Massachusetts. We can do that. We can get off of this. You know, it gives it gives kids a, a rallying point and a vision for a future. And just to highlight that, Marco Rubio, who was on, I think he was on ABC's this week. I can't remember what Sunday talk show it was. Backtracked on climate change, said he didn't think humans had a role to play in climate change. It was too expensive to address. He got ragged on. I mean, he got hit hard in the press. And then he was forced at the National Press Club to walk his comments back because journalists were asking him the question. I think that's remarkable. People were pushing so hard to get climate change talked about in the 2012 campaign. And now all of a sudden moving into the um, primaries in 20, for 2016, people are actually starting to ask questions about the candidates' positions on climate change in a meaningful way, and they're holding them accountable for it. And people realize that, that they are being held accountable and they're walking their statements back. So there will be a deep divide between people like Deval Patrick and Marco Rubio. And I think that will look very good for someone like Patrick and others that are willing to stand up for the issues. And what you need to do is make sure that if you want to make a difference, that you can't look like some intellectual defeat rich person. You have to be able to convey this to regular people and show them how important it is to their daily lives. That's right. And, and Bill Clinton said that this week at the Center for American Progress, not on climate change, but on other issues. He said, it's amazing to, to him how politicians refuse to explain policy to the general public anymore. They just assume yeah. that the general public's too dumb or too disinterested to understand the details. All right, let's tell our listeners something they don't know to wrap up the show. Jigger, you got any good stories this week? So, you know, IRENA was set up as sort of a separate group, the International Renewable Energy Agency based out of Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And they came out with a report that basically said that six and a half million people around the world were employed by the renewable energy industry. And, uh, and that's, that's pretty damn amazing. And so I was pretty happy to see that. And they broke it down by by uh, country and all those other things. And I think they actually underestimated it because they were really only focused on renewable energy. But um, but it's great to see that uh, we're really, you know, putting numbers around employment and, and these types of things, um, you know, with this level of specificity. Was that direct jobs or direct and indirect? I didn't see the report. These were direct jobs. So, you know, so like the U.S. had about 625,000 people, which we know is, you know, sort of on the low end when you include energy efficiency and lots of other stuff from AEE's report. But these were sort of direct jobs. So, Ooh, that's great. You should link to that report, Stephen. I will. Catherine, what do you have? So the other night uh, I was watching Chris Matthews and his last bit on MSNBC. And, you know, part of the reason I watch him is my friend John Fury is on there as the as the token Republican, but he's always totally fun to hear. Um, and Chris was making some comments about how more young people are getting their news from John Stewart, Stephen Colbert. And John Stewart is really starting to de deliver news in a much more serious way. And I just would note that 
John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, those guys do a great job talking about climate and making the issue, you know, raising the issue to public consciousness when often the regular news doesn't at all. You know, on a related note, uh, I just heard that Neil Patrick Harris actually was offered the David Letterman job and turned it down because he thought it would be monotonous. You're obsessed with the position (laughs) of David Letterman. Well, I think it's an important position. I grew up watching, you know, The Tonight Show and so... No, so so that will be Stephen Colbert, but back to Colbert and John Stewart, and now John Oliver, who has an HBO show, a weekly HBO show dissecting the week's news, and he focuses a lot on international stuff. He had this really great segment last week where he brought out uh, climate scientists versus climate skeptics to have a statistically representative debate. So he had three. Uh, skeptics on one side and 97 climate scientists who came out. It it was so funny and it got passed around. It went viral. Such good messaging to be able to poke fun at the issue, but do it in a serious way. And quite frankly, while a lot of the news organizations have been pretty bad at covering climate change, there is some really good coverage, funny coverage on these shows. Yeah, and it really it really showed up the the other channels that always, you know, if there's one person on one side, there's one person on the other side, as if the sides have the same weight. All right, so I'm just going to quickly follow up on last week's discussion about Roan Resch because uh, I got some responses to it. So he was criticized by some in the solar industry about his 2012 salary, which amounted to about $800,000. And so that amount surfaced in public documents uh, that were revealed by the website Red, Green, and Blue. And people got pretty upset that their dues were going to such high executive compensation. Um, Jigger defended the work that Rome was doing. I personally don't have an opinion on the matter. I mean, I'm not there to see the inner workings of SIA, and it's up to the compensation committee to make that determination of his value. But I will say that I've gotten a couple off the record responses to that conversation from people in the industry. Some were pretty strong. Uh, One former SIA employee pointed out that the organization had laid off around a third of its staff over the last few years while executive compensation increased. And another VP at uh, one of the top solar companies in this country expressed outrage at the salary level and said that people were demanding more information internally. So in response to some of the concerns, uh, Arno Harris, who is SIA's board chairman, penned an op-ed at Clean Technica outlining some of the things that Roan had accomplished, including the long extension of the ITC, getting solar as a big priority at DOE programs, expanding FERC fast-track programs, um, uh, partnering to expand solar programs on the state level, a number of things. And he said that the executive committee looked at other salaries at energy advocacy groups and determined that it was fair. So I just wanted to follow up on that. I'll leave the judgment of fairness up to others, but let's just say that this has created quite a stir behind the scenes in the industry. So I figured I would uh, provide that update. And well, but the, it's important to note that if all these people actually want a voice, they should be a member of SIA. It's tragic that so few people are a member of SIA when they do such great work. And if you really want to have an opinion on what Roan makes, pay your 500 bucks. All right. Well, that is all for our podcast this week. Thank you so much for being here with us. We love having you here. To find links to the stories we discussed throughout the show, head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. There you can find old episodes, leave some comments, subscribe, send links to your friends. And if you want to contact us with comments, questions, story ideas, send me an email. I'm at Lacey 
L-A-C-E-Y at greentechmedia.com. Catherine Hamilton, have yourself a wonderful Friday and a good weekend. Thanks. You too, Stephen. And Jigger, you as well. Enjoy your time in Minnesota there. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time.